This is the Education Gadfly Show. Can we get the real Mike Petrilli on this I show? Mean, that sounded like Checker Finn right there. That was very depressing. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, David Houston. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Great to have you on. David is an assistant professor in the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University, just right around the corner from us, as it so happens. Well, you got all these titles, university affiliate, faculty member in the Shar School of Policy and Government, also at Ed Policy Forward, and uh, most importantly for our conversation today, the survey director of the Education Next poll at Harvard University. That was a lot. Yeah, academics love titles. I'm glad to chat with you guys about the poll. Giving people more titles is easy. You don't have to necessarily pay for them. That's the key. That's the key. key. Well, also joining us with the distinguished title of Associate Director of Research at Fordham, David Griffith. How are you, David? Thanks, Mike. No other titles that I'm aware of, but hey, this should be confusing, right? I would love to find a funder that wants to make you the such and such chair of such and such at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. That'd be awesome. I can be the czar of critical race theory or something, (laughs) right? So anyways, if you're a funder out there and you're listening and you would like to endow a chair for David. (laughs) That was the worst pitch ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We're going to workshop that a little bit. (laughs) Well, two Davids, got a David G and a David H. Even same parts of the alphabet, for God's sake. But we'll do our best here. Appreciate you being uh, here, though, David Houston, to talk about the Education Next poll, uh, which came out just a few weeks ago. Let's do that in Ed Reform Update. There's a million things we could talk about with this poll. Tell us if you had to, the, the major headlines for this year's poll, you guys do this every year. We do this. I'm, I'm part of Ed Next also. What do you think are like the two or three big headlines that most people should take away? You know, if I had to boil it down to three or four bullet points, I would say the big headlines are, you know, since their peak, I would argue as a form of solidarity during the height of the pandemic, the public's perceptions of school quality have declined a little bit over the last couple of years. That has corresponded with bullet number two. We've seen sort of a reversion to form on a lot of the public's attitudes towards various education reforms, charter schools, vouchers, questions about education spending, questions about teacher salaries. Almost all of these different issues from the ideological left and the ideological right all took a hit during the deep valley of the pandemic. And as we are hopefully emerging into some semblance of normalcy, Public attitudes towards various issues have all sort of, you know, returned to pre-pandemic levels. The one that I would like to point out, bullet number three, which I think is particularly interesting, is that public support for higher teacher salaries is at the highest level we've ever seen in the Ednext poll. And we've been running this since 2007. We also do a fun little experiment about this question. We ask half of our sample what they think about teacher salaries. But we also randomly assign the other half of the sample to receive accurate information about average teacher salaries in their state. And then we ask them the same question, you know, what do you think about teacher salaries? And we call this the uninformed and the informed condition. In both of those conditions, we're seeing the highest level of support we've ever seen for higher teacher salaries. Let's stop with those three first, because we're going to have opinions about them. Question on the teacher salary one. Remind us, when was the poll in the field? I'm, of course, thinking about inflation is probably on people's minds. May. Basically, the entire month of May. 
Inflation is roaring away at this point. And so I think that could be part of the explanation, which is when you hear average teacher salaries, all of a sudden those all seem lower than they did yeah. and th those same numbers felt a year ago. And so interesting, too, that during the pandemic, people couldn't handle thinking about reform. I, I can't handle any more change. Just get the school open, whether it was charter schools or preschool. They just didn't want to hear about it. Now that maybe things are starting to feel more normal or we're in May, they're willing to give that a view again. Any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, no, that feels about right to me psychologically. I guess I'll say I'm willing to be convinced. I'm a little skeptical of the inflation narrative just because it sounds like it also holds in the uninformed condition, mm -hmm. right? I guess I just wonder if it's not as much a response to the general perception that it's been a tough couple years for teachers. And I should also say that the trend line on this item, one of the nice things about the Ed and X poll is we ask identical questions year after year after year, which allows us to track how public opinion has changed on these issues. And attitudes towards higher teacher salaries have been on the upslope for the last half decade, if not longer. I would answer this question differently now than I would have a year ago. If I'm running a school, of course, we oversee charter schools in Ohio. We know, yeah, if you're not giving people raises, you're cutting their pay. This is the horrible wage price spiral that economists are worried about. But again, if I'm worried about getting quality teachers into the schools. I'd say, yeah, I mean, at 9% inflation, we better be raising teacher salaries. Back to the headlines, David. I think you've got one more headline. I think I know what it's going to be, and it's what I really want to dig in on. Oh, great. Yeah, so, bullet number four, which is that we dug into the archive of the Ednext poll. So this poll has been in, in action since 2007. And like I mentioned, we repeat questions over time which gives us a really cool opportunity to look at, you know, long-term changes in public opinion dynamics. And so one thing that we did with this year's poll is we tracked the role of partisanship as it has evolved over the last decade and a half. Specifically, in this particular analysis, we look at the difference on average between Democrats' responses and Republicans' responses on all of these longstanding education policy issues and tracking what we would call the partisan gap on these issues over time. The punchline of that is that there's been this conventional wisdom that education is exceptional with respect to American politics. There are some elements of the weird history of ed governance that can partially explain that. You know, school district borders rarely align with other political jurisdictions. School board elections are often held at unusual times, and school board candidates regularly don't run with party affiliations. For all of these and more reasons, the politics of education have often been fractious and red and tooth and claw, but they've seldom been really partisan, at least in sort of a, a neat Democrats versus Republicans sort of way. And what we're seeing is that maybe that era is perhaps coming to a close. We're seeing these partisan gaps emerge and expand over the last 15 years. Now, I should include one important caveat, which is that on a lot of these issues, education spending, charter schools, vouchers, annual testing, things like that, the partisan gaps that we see on education issues pale in comparison to some of the you know, equivalent gaps that we would uncover on other domestic policy issues about um, reproductive rights or criminal justice or environmental issues. On a, on a comparative basis, education is relatively depolarized, but it is polarizing, which is a new development that we're uncovering. And that's interesting. It's funny. I feel like we have to remind, especially younger people who weren't around 15 years ago, or paying attention, they were in our lousy schools back then, you know, that there was a time 15, 20, 25 years ago when things did feel pretty bipartisan on the education front. Now, 
there were fights, of course, and disagreements, but a lot of times we would say that education reform was kind of a center-left, center-right thing with a battle within the Republican Party over education policy, a battle within the Democratic Party over education policy, but a lot of agreement on the, the center-left and center-right. And now you're seeing maybe some of that center disappear as we have in the rest of our politics. And the question I would have is, uh, does this mean that people are changing their minds, that people who used to agree on charter schools, now some of the people a little bit more on the left are like, you know, I don't like charter schools that much anymore. People on the right that maybe used to like, say, federal role in education being stronger, and I'm like, nah, I'm not really good with that anymore. Is that what's happening? People are changing their mind? Or, dot, 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 the parties are changing. I mean, the Republican Party especially is completely different than it was even a few years ago, much less 15 years ago. It's become more populist, right? It's become more dominated by working class adults. In the most recent couple of years, we've also seen in the Democratic Party, we've seen some of those working class Hispanics and working class Blacks move into the Republican column. So is this just reflected the political sorting that's happening, whereas the views are, are staying stable? This I, a, I bet, by the way, that there's a word for this in the academic research that I should know, and I don't know what it is, but you can use those words. Well, this is a phenomenal question. What we uncover in the article that we published um, in Education Next about the poll is merely that we're seeing that the difference on average in attitudes towards these various education reform issues between Democrats and Republicans has been gradually expanding over time. Mm -hmm. And as Mike points out, that could be the product of two fundamentally different phenomena, or, or both, which is that folks are changing their views or the compositions of the parties are changing. That latter option is a really plausible explanation here. Think about best demographic predictors of someone's political party identification. They are things like educational attainment, which, by the way, is new. 30 years ago, controlling for other demographic factors, educational attainment was not a great predictor of your political party affiliation. In the, the post-Trump era, are we in the post-Trump era? Probably not. We'll never be in the post-Trump era. But now educational attainment is a really profoundly important predictor of your political party ID, income, race, gender. What's important here, why this is relevant, is because those are also moderately successful predictors of these educational policy preferences. And so if the party's composition is changing, some of these expanded partisan gaps may be a function of these changing, the changing composition of the parties. The example that you know, makes sense to me, and then I'll let David Griffith get in here, is, you know, is on the charter school question. We've known for a long time that there's been this big split in the Democratic Party with Black and Hispanic voters uh, much more likely to support charter schools than whites, especially white liberals. But you imagine if some of these Black and Hispanic working class charter school supporting voters are the ones becoming Republicans, especially the men, which I think is what's happening, taking their support for charter schools with them. Well, that drives down support among Democrats for charter schools, and it increases maybe support among Republicans. David Griffith, what do you think? You can call me David number two, Mike. You're number one in my... Well, I, I had one point of clarification. So another thing that's happening is there's been just this rise of people classifying themselves as independent. Mm -hmm. Are you able to account for that? The way that we identify political party ID in the Ed Next poll makes it pretty darn difficult to be an independent. You know, we ask folks if they identify with one party, if, if they're reluctant to say that or if they decline to say that. We say, well, do you lean towards one party or the other? And we even give them one more opportunity. We make it pretty difficult to identify as a pure independent, in part because the political science research over the last 20, 30 years has shown that folks 
that are willing to tip their hand toward one party or the other often behave in ways that are very similar to those who are proud members of one party or the other. So our proportion of independence in our poll hasn't changed as much. Other folks will ask this question in a different way, and we do see the growing size of this category of independence. It's less so in our poll. The next place I'd like to take the conversation is just the individual issues, because I actually found that fascinating and sort of intuitive, I think. You know, you have that great series of graphs where you show the growth of polarization for each individual issue or not. My biggest takeaway, which I didn't necessarily anticipate, was some of these issues actually aren't polarizing. And it was really interesting to see which ones they were. For example, correct me if I'm wrong, but testing seems to be completely depolarized, which was just fascinating to me. But the ones that were most polarized were A, unions, which made some sense if we think this is about politics. And then charter schools seem to also be getting vacuumed up, which made sense to me if it was about politics and unions. If I had to pick one issue that really animates the unions, it would be charter schools. Can you build on that or what am I missing? Is that? Yeah, this is a good read of our results here. And I think it's really important to emphasize your first point, which is to say that the politics of education are increasingly partisan is not to say that they are exclusively partisan. There are a lot of issues within the field where we do not observe the partisan gap widening. Our question asks, do you support or oppose the federal requirement that kids are tested annually from grades three through eight and once in high school? I think it's underappreciated how large of a majority of the American public supports this. And in fact, that the difference between Democrats and Republicans is modest at best and has not been increasing since we've begun asking that question in 2010, which I think runs counter to some of the prevailing narratives. On the flip side, the issues where we really do see this rise in partisanship, the role of partisanship organizing these attitudes, are primarily issues about teachers, teachers' unions, teachers' salaries, and as you pointed out, the sort of non-teacher-specific issue that is held up as an object of animus by teachers' unions, charter schools. The one other one that I would include is the Common Core, which I think has a slightly different history of polarization, one that comes from the right rather than from the left. And to give a little bit of attention to one of our competitor polls, the PDK poll that just came out as well, mm-hmm. that they had a finding, I believe, that was also about partisanship and it's in, you know, in whether people trust teachers on some of these culture war issues. And so, of course, not surprisingly, that was one where things are polarized. And, but again, it has to do with teachers as the way that they frame that. There's a million more interesting things in the survey this year and every year. People can dig in. There's cool interactive graphics. So they should definitely check that out on the Education Next website. But hey, we really appreciate it. David Houston, again, Assistant Professor in the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason and the Survey Director of the Education Next poll at Harvard University. Thanks for coming on the show, David. I hope we can make this a habit and have you on sometime again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, David. This was a pleasure. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. She had a good reminder from David Houston there that America loves standardized testing. And you know what? We love standardized testing too. We should not be ashamed of this. We should be excited and proud and- Card-carrying test members, yes. Why is it so hard to believe this? Because even though we just talked about it, I find myself still not believing it. Because in our world, I feel like people are forever apologizing for standardized testing. We're like, well, how can we message this better? And 
People who are for it don't really care, and the people who are against it hate it. What no we're sensing ground. in our gut. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. probably where my gut is on it. As long as you don't tie any consequences to standardized testing, especially, people really like it. That's been the case for a long time now. You know, people are like, sure. And what does accountability mean without that? I'm well, that's why sure. we don't have accountability. We have transparency. <laughs> people are fine with transparency. Now, if you fire a teacher because the kids got bad test scores, of course, people hate that. Context matters. All right, Amber. Well, whatever the study is, I bet it uses test scores in some way. Am I right? It does. Imagine that. Another reason we love tests. We have a study, a new one as usual, out from Tom D. and Susanna Lope. It's out in the EEPA journal this month. Examines the impact of superintendents who participated in the Broad Foundation-funded Broad Superintendents Academy which is a big deal. That's moved to Yale, by the way. I was trying to figure out where is this now, but it's still going. It's at the Yale School of Management. So they start looking at the impact of this program from starting in 2002 when it first began. For those who don't know, the Broad Foundation is a self-avowed supporter of, quote, reform-minded leadership and charter school networks. From 2002 to 11, the Academy comprised a 10-month executive management program. They would try to go after folks in different sectors, the private sector, nonprofits, the military, as well as the traditional education sector, and they would train them in the demands of the superintendency. Training topics included labor relations, student interventions, data management systems, school board relations, operations, and public engagement. In 2012, I guess they figured it wasn't enough because they expanded the program to two years. (laughs) So it went from 10 months to two years. Included the reform priorities of, quote, educator effectiveness, school choice, innovative learning models, and accountability. So that's about as much as I can tell you about what the program was all about. The study included demographic and employment data from all of the BSA, again, Broad Superintendent Academy trainees, from 2002 through 2015. Analysts merged these data with data from the largest 300 school districts, which enroll over one-third of all public students in the U.S. over a time period that overlapped with that trainee data. Ultimately, nearly one-third of these districts were served by a board-trained suit since the program started. With the combined data set, analysts are able to examine several outcomes, including the number of charter schools, charter and TPS enrollment, closures of traditional schools, per-pupil expenditures, high school graduation rates, and student achievement pulled from SEDA or CEDA. They compare the characteristics of BSA completers who eventually lead districts compared to non-BSA soups in those same districts. They use a difference in differences design with fixed effects, which basically compares the changes in district outcomes following the hiring of the BSA soup to the same time or contemporaneous changes in districts that did not make such hires. They also conduct three other models with different underlying assumptions to see how their results might differ. That is a lot of models going on, but I'll give you the bottom line in a minute. Descriptive findings. I'm going to ask you real quick. What do you think? How many school leaders do you think they trained over the 20 years? District leaders? District leaders. Probably about 300. 200. Okay. Yeah, they tried to keep it kind of small. Mm of which 53% ended up taking on any role in a public school district. Still, though only 42% worked as a superintendent during the 20-year window, BSA soups at their peak served nearly 3 million students. Just 6% of these BSA folks worked in a CMO or EMO. 
54% in the superintendent pool identified as either black or Hispanic, and broad soups were 40% more likely to be black than non-broad soups. Half of the pool had teaching experience, 19% were in the military. Compared to non-BSA soups, BSA-trained soups were typically employed in districts that served higher concentrations of black and Hispanic students. They also had shorter tenures. I think their tenure was about three and a half years, which is roughly one and a half years shorter than non-BSA soups. Now we're finally at the DID results. Broad trained leaders had little to no effect on student achievement, school closures, enrollment, spending, or high school graduation rates. The one thing that they did find a change, the hiring of Broad Soups was associated with a trend toward increased charter school enrollment and growth in the number of charter schools that extended beyond the short tenure of the Broad Soup. The enrollment in and number of charters was mostly flat leading up to the Broad hire, but both trended consistently upward afterwards. Their various models each have a little different pinpointing of the magnitude of the growth, but they were all positive with the highest estimates showing that charter enrollment and the number of charters grew respectively by about 6 and 4% for each additional year after the Broad hire. That's what I got. I was really looking for a nice, robust discussion around that charter finding, but they didn't have one, so we get to speculate here. And look, I mean, as big fans of charter schools, not just testing, but charter schools too, this is a good outcome. If pretty indirect, could have been that they made the district itself friendlier as a charter school authorizer, or was there some other kind of shift that made it more likely for other authorizers in the area to start new charter schools? That is interesting. The bigger question to me is like, why did they have no impact on on this all the other stuff. stuff. I yeah. understand student achievement. It's just hard. I mean, they're just so far removed from the classroom and there's so many steps that would have to happen to get you to a student achievement outcome. You still like to see it. But even this other stuff that weren't differences in enrollment or spending or my understanding with the Broad folks, especially in the early years, they definitely bought into this notion of a very heavy emphasis on empowering schools on leadership on trying to you know make every public school more like a charter school possible that that was a wrong bet we've had debates in the gadfly on this lately you know a better bet might have been to really go big on high quality instructional materials on curriculum on pretty centralized approach to that stuff really investing in supporting teachers from the central office on a high quality instructional materials. That is something the Council of Great City Schools has pushed more over the years. So I don't know. It also may be that the Broad folks, that they recruited some great people and then they gave them bad advice on how to run an urban school system. I sincerely doubt that, Mike. I think it's just really hard to change the direction of the Titanic. The huge sprawling bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, let's... I, I, <laughs> we have a lot of studies showing that. I mean, let's oh, just man. start with achievement. If any study finds an impact on achievement at the superintendent level, I'm going to be immediately assume that there's some sort of selection going on. I mean, it's not realistic, in my opinion, which is crazy to say, because it's, I mean, in my everyday life as a citizen, of course, I care a lot about what superintendent there is. But when I step back and look at it statistically, the odds of making any dent in three years are so fantastically low. It's ridiculous. There's no way that I would expect an effect there. I think they did look to out to six, David. The the universe is more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And this other stuff, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm a little surprised that there wasn't more of an impact on spending. But even there, so much of it is set in stone um, or it's on autopilot. You don't just walk in and become a superintendent and suddenly all the budgets change, right? It yeah. takes you probably a year to even figure out what the budget says. 
My takeaway from this is actually that it worked. It turns out that they are boosting something that we think works. One of the only things that we think works. Oh, on and, the Carter side. Yeah, I mean, what else would we really expect? Well, and you could say we don't see negative impacts and the fact that they were able to get some new people in, fresh blood, more diverse. The idea of having non-traditional people who did not spend their careers in education, this doesn't seem to be a bad thing. It's hard to sort of accept that it's so difficult for us to have an impact. Yeah. But it's yeah, so difficult spe- for us to have an impact. I mean, we spend a lot of time trying to find these superintendents. Yeah. I mean, you know, we do national searches and hires and we fight over mm-hmm. them. And, you know, we really think that they should matter. But, of course, part of the story here is that it's been really hard for a lot of these Brodies to get hired. Because the unions say, we don't want a Brody because we think they're going to come in here and bust the union or whatever. I mean, this isn't study isn't going to necessarily help change the trajectory. Be like, <laughs> well, what we know is at least we're probably not going to do any harm. And in fact, in my wake, uh, we might have more charter schools here. I'm not I'm not sure, given the politics of most school boards, urban school boards especially, that's going to be a winning message. Darn it, darn it, <laughs> darn it. Hey, but we like it, Mike. I would be curious, and I'd love to hear from the Broad folks if they would say that they have shifted the program over the year, the advice, do they go heavier now, for example, on curriculum and instruction and urging districts to play a bigger role in that than maybe they did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago? I'll include myself in that. The 20 years ago, I would have been more enthusiastic about urban districts trying to turn most of their schools into charter schools or charter-like schools. I don't know if that's politically sustainable. I'm not sure that that's actually the way to go. The way to go is more akin to, frankly, what I see in Montgomery County uh, public schools, as much as I complain about them with my own kids, you know, where a big central office with a lot of resources and expertise is able to drive curricular and instructional change pretty good. It's not necessarily excellence, but it's pretty good. It's way better than mediocre. Can we get the real Mike Petrilli on the show? Mean, that sounded like Checker Finn right there. That was very depressing. Petrilli endorses centralized bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, too. I know. Like, <laughs> and he's depressed, and this is the best we can do. And oh my gosh, and it's mediocre, but it's better than nothing. I think it's the best school districts can do. School districts, if they're pretty good, that is a huge win. If you want excellence, I think you got to do it through charter schools. I just think it's really hard to do excellence within these crazy bureaucratic systems Mm, with politicized school boards and all the rest. That's why I'm a huge charter school supporter. That's where you do excellence. I think you let school districts do the school district thing and do it as well as they can, and they can do it pretty darn well. That's better. Districts do have a significant impact on charter adoption in many, many states. Sometimes it's the state that's reviewing it, overturning the decision, or who knows. There are a lot of ways that you could potentially see it mattering. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Well, hey, we'll leave it there. We don't know. I will have to say that we are out of time. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.